So we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John as we take a more of a thematic approach to John's Gospel. And we're in this series that Jake so wonderfully kicked off last week called Confronting Jesus. Confronting Jesus. And today we're going to be in John chapter 5. But the reality is that the culture that we live in and modern day the modern day secular vision of Jesus is simply the person of Jesus secularized. The reality is that we cannot deny the existence of Jesus because the evidence is too overwhelming, there's too much proof. But secularism strips Jesus of his divinity and only claims his humanity. He was a good teacher, a good thought leader, a good religious person. But his vision for compassion and holiness is now being trumped by different versions of what is good, true, right, and beautiful. For an example, maybe you've heard this before, or someone say this to you, or heard this on TV. Don't judge me for my choice of sexuality. In other words, compassion for a person's choice to express their sexuality trumps God's law and God's plan for human flourishing. This is compassion without a moral frame. The secular vision of the good life is historically rooted in the teachings of Jesus, but like the Thomas Jefferson Bible, who very famously has his own version of the Bible, who cut out or removed the miracles and divinity part of Jesus' life, leaving only the compassion of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, and said, this is the, the Jesus I like. Secularism has created a vision for compassion that focuses on good things, like the disabled, the weak, or the outsider, but stripping Jesus out of the picture. Culture takes the fruit of Jesus' life, the verses they like, and ignores the divinity in his call to holiness. That word holy simply means that God is calling us to be as dedicated to him as he is dedicated to us. So why? Why does this matter? Because if Jesus is God then our call is far greater than doing good works. Our call is for holistic transformation, that by this transformation, our good works would flow out of. Our call is to come and die and rise with Jesus, to die to our agendas and, our and, and the rights to choose what is good, true, right, and beautiful on our own. In other words, we can't do good in the world to feel better about ourselves, but rather what God is calling us to is a life of heaven which lives inside of you and me as apprentices of Jesus, flowing out of us as we partner with the God of heaven to bring the kingdom of God to earth through justice, through caring for the disabled, through righteousness, through caring for the weak, through his compassion, and through his love. 
But I love what Carl Truman says about the modern self. He says this, that the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. In other words, what he's saying is how I feel becomes my true self. And the problem that you and I face for the first time in history, when it comes to this secular vision for what is good, true, right, and beautiful, and for what is, how to do good, has become more attractive because they have, in many ways, taken the message of Christianity on its, and take, put it on its back and have used the values of the gospel against us. The secular vision for good is calling people to a non-judgmental, compassionate, and accepting way of life while calling out Christianity as too narrow, uptight, and judgmental. So the question for you and for me who call ourselves followers of Christ, apprentices of Jesus, the question is how do we, as an apprentice of Jesus, reclaim the vision for good that God has laid out in Scripture. And what we're going to see today in John chapter 5 is Jesus is going to confront the religious elite of the day, the educated of the day, whose vision for good was wrapped up in a life that obeys the law, which is, is the Torah or the Ten Commandments, right? The moral code of Scripture that obeys a structure where a person gets closer to God as long as they follow the moral codes of the Old Testament law. And like secularism today, their vision of how to be human was founded in the scriptures, but they're completely missing the point. Completely missing the point. You know, one of my favorite, uh, favorite things about living where we live in Northern California, the Bay Area, is the Redwood Forest. Are there any Redwood Forest fans in the building? Okay. All right. Amen. I love it. I love it. I love going there. It's incredible. We'll be driving up, and we're not even to our destination yet. And I'm like, I tell my wife, Lillian, I'm like, we got to stop. I got to take this in, take pictures, and post it on Instagram, because you guys know I like to do that, right? Good story on Instagram. Everyone likes that, right? right when we stop, and we, it's, it's just incredible. But one of the best parts about these trees and I did some research uh, this week, so don't make fun of me, okay? But I did some tr research on trees, all right? It's, I'm a total nerd when it comes to this stuff. I was looking up some facts about the redwood trees, and especially the ones off the coast, which I just love so much. But these are trees, and, and I don't know if it's this tree exactly, but there are trees that have grown or lived life for over 2,000 years. A lot of us know this, right? It's, it's incredible. These are literally the tallest trees on planet Earth right now. It's amazing. And they're only found in Northern California and in the like, southernmost part of Oregon. Now, if I were to come to you and gave you all the facts about this tree and said this tree has been alive and grown for 2,200 years, and, and, and I'm trying to describe to you the gravity and the, and the beauty and the majesty of the redwood forest, but all I'm doing is I'm focusing in on the tree, and I'm telling you, and I've seen pictures of this, by the way, maybe you have too, where people stand around the tree. Have you done this, right? They stand around, and there's like 15 people, right, circling the tree, and I'm 
sitting here and I'm trying to describe, man, there's like 15 guys can go around the tree and I'm describing that and I'm telling you where it is and how beautiful this tree is. Would you guys get a good idea of the gravity and majesty of the entire Redwood Forest? Of course not. Why? Because you're missing the forest where the trees. In our scripture today, this is what Jesus is going to show the religious elite of the, of the, of the day. They're missing the forest of God's greater redemption plan and narrative for the tree of God's law. What Jesus does is he's revealing the trees that are causing the Pharisees to miss the greater plan that God is writing in humanity, the bigger picture, the grander story, because they're so focused on describing what the tree looks like, they're missing the entire forest. And now if you're taking notes, here's where I hope we go today, and, and here's what I'm hoping you leave with today. And if you're taking notes, uh, maybe write this down. Here's kind of the big idea, is that Jesus confronts our distorted views of God and reveals our watered-down convictions while calling us out of our brokenness and into resurrection life. Jesus here is going to confront their distorted views of God and his greater plan for redemption by revealing their watered-down convictions and our watered-down convictions while calling you and me out of our sin, out of our brokenness, and into resurrection life. Now, for context, Jesus has just healed a man in John chapter 5. He's just healed a man. He's healed a man with physical disabilities who he's been disabled, at least what we can tell, his entire life. And in verse 8 of John chapter 5, Jesus tells the man it's one of the great miracles of the New Testament to get up and to walk, to take up his bed, which he would have been lying down on for God knows how long in the city, to take up his bed and to walk. And because of this amazing miracle, Jesus sets off a ripple effect in the religious community because he breaks the Sabbath. Jesus confronts the cultural boundaries of the day and says to the man who he just healed, go and sin no more. You're healed holistically. You're healed now spiritually. And the religious elite began to persecute Jesus, it says, because of the miracles that he did on the Sabbath. It was a Sabbath day. Jesus broke the Sabbath. So what's, why? Well, what's the big deal about the Sabbath? This idea of Sabbath comes from the ancient texts 
in the ancient book called Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, where God creates the universe in six days and rests on the seventh day. It's, his, it's him putting into motion uh, a rhythm of work and rest into the fabric of humanity. And for the nation of Israel, who were God's special people in the world, Sabbath became a a, a day for celebration, a day for rest, yes, for the nation of Israel, but a, a day dedicated to resting, but also focusing on God. It was also what uh, separated them from the rest of the world, from the rest of the nations. This is how you knew if they were the, God's special people was that the, the people of Israel would follow and take part in the Sabbath. But what these leaders could not see and what Jesus is going to show us is that the Sabbath, the, the, the day of the Sabbath, was only a shadow of what it would be like when the Messiah comes. It's meant to point to Christ as our rest. He says in Mark 2.27, Jesus, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the next verse says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders found this intolerable, his attitude towards the Sabbath. And it's actually one of the things that if you trace throughout the Gospels, what eventually will get him crucified. And when Jesus broke the Sabbath, what he did was he confronted how rooted in the scriptures these Jewish leaders were. Now, these Jewish leaders, these religious leaders of the day, very educated, spend most of their life in school, are not, you know, not just, you know, people making up rules. I mean, these guys memorize the first five books of the Bible. They're, in, they're, they're studying the scriptures on a daily basis. They are hardcore. They take it very seriously. They know intellectually what the Old Testament or what the five or what the Torah says. But Jesus knows it's the Sabbath. It's intentional. He, he, I mean, let's be honest, he could have chose any day, right, to, to heal the man. But he's stirring up the theology of the Jews. He's become a threat to their world their worldview a threat to their cultural boundaries and a threat politically to the power, to their power as leaders. So it says they set out to persecute them. Forget the healing. Forget the miracle power. They just walk through the building, right? No, this guy has the potential to take our power as political leaders, as religious leaders of the day so we need to get them out of the picture. And this is what they try to do. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 16. And this is where we reach this story. It says this that in verse 16. And this, is, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But then Jesus answered, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God 
his own father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is a direct attack to the theology of these religious leaders. The reality is when we encounter Jesus, he confronts the things that keep us from intimately knowing him. Jesus is going to confront the religious leaders of the day, but also you and me and our watered-down convictions. Now, for context, we need to know why Jesus was, or why the Jews were so stunned by Jesus' claim, as they say in verse 19, that he's equal with God. He's equal with God. These Jewish leaders approach the name of God, as some of you might know, with extreme reverence. I mean, every time they would come up to the word Lord, which is in their language, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, what would they do? They would skip over it at times because they felt like they were not worthy to even say or to speak the name of the Lord, Yahweh. So they took his name with great reverence. They knew scriptures like this one in Exodus. Who among the gods is like you, Lord or Yahweh? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And now... Jesus, this man who's popping out on the scene, is saying he is one with the Father. But it, I caught something as I was reading this. In verse 18 and 19, or verse 18, it says, This is why they started, the Jews started seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but then they say, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What Jesus does is he confronts their watered-down convictions with good theology, and he says this in verse 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The Jewish leaders of the day are saying, you're saying you're equal with God. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not saying I'm equal with God. I'm united with God. Amen? Jesus is using unity language here to describe his relationship with the Father. Why is this so important? Because what Jesus is doing is he's explaining more fully how it is that Israel's God is working in a new way. 
He's showing the son so that the son can then do it with him on his behalf. He is giving life to the dead. And what he's doing is he's hinting at what is to come in the resurrection. See, when we encounter Jesus, what we have to encounter is Jesus' claims demand that we see him and the Father's hearts are beating as one. And what the Pharisees could not see is that in order to be truly holy, they needed more than their religious efforts. And what they could not see is the fact that this man who just healed a man is not just equal with God. He is God. He's one with God. He is the second member of the Trinity, of the triune God who is one. See, when the, what the Pharisees thought was, I need to do my way to the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, because of me, you can just be. And theologically, what this is called is legalism. If you've never heard this word before, it just means separating the law of God from the person of God. Back in Genesis, the account of Adam and Eve, Eve looks at the tree, and the tree God sets into motion, and he says, don't eat or touch of this tree. They got all the trees in the Garden of Eden, all the trees in the world to, to, to eat from and to, be, and to partake of and to be a part of. But what she did was she abstracted the law from the love and generosity of God. Because what she believed and she took what the serpent had said to be true, that God was separated in, in, from the law and she believed that God was keeping something from her. And so... Uh, most of us know she eats of the fruit. She wanted God on her terms, not on his terms. And here's what this means. That if you claim to follow Jesus, but your sin and old ways of living are not confronted with the nature of Jesus and his holiness and his divinity, then it means by default that your apprenticeship to Jesus and your process of growing into more Christ-likeness will always hit a wall. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I was still in the military, but I was doing an internship. I knew that God had called me to be a pastor and a leader in the church, and I wanted to learn what that meant and how to do it. So I followed around a pastor at the church I was at, I grew up in, and I said, hey, let me follow you around. Let me learn from you how to, how to write a sermon, how to do counseling appointments, you know, the whole thing. Like, how, how, do, how do I be a pastor? So this guy let me be creepy and follow him around, you know, places, and we would go to different places and things like that. And we would meet on occasion and just talk about how I'm doing, how my process is going, and, and, and everything. And we sat down one day, and he said something that I'll never forget that was actually extremely profound and really just kind of hit me in the moment. We were sitting down in his office, and I said, man, how, like, what, what do you think is keeping me from taking that next step? I was asking, like, what do you think is keeping me from God allowing me to be a pastor right now? The early 20s, you know, still trying to figure things out. And he said this, I don't know, but it seems like you're hitting a wall. 
And whatever that wall is, it needs to come down first. And what he did not know, and I actually never told him this, is sitting there, I knew exactly what God was using him to expose in me. At, at that point in my life, I had some addictions and sins that I had been tolerating, but brushing under the table. Because I was an intern. I was training to be a pastor. And so I figured they would kind of offset themselves. And as long as I do more of the intern work at the church, then this sin that I've been tolerating for so long, well, maybe God will just forget about it. And what I learned that moment was that my attempt to brush my sin, tolerated sin under the rug and exchange it for a harder working ministry mindset was my legalism. It was me separating God's love and grace and active work in my life and his law. This wasn't about my love for the law. Rather, it was my distorted view of God. And for the religious leaders of the day, this isn't just about intellect, but it's about how they felt about God. It's about what they knew about God's character, how they, what they knew about God's grace and his activity in the world and what he was going to do and his promise of redemption. It's how they felt. And maybe you can relate. You know, at times, we can spend our entire lives praying for something or for God to do some work in our life, and we get to the point of frustration, and we say to ourselves, rather than having a redemptive view that God's promises are always going to come true, and that he's going to redeem all things through the work and person of Jesus, and he's promised that what the work he started in me, he will finish, instead of taking that redemptive view, we tend to, to sweep ourselves into this distorted view of God that maybe this is just my plot in life. Has anyone ever said that before other than me? Maybe I've done too much to make God mad at me, so I'm just going to take what God gives me and be happy with it and have a mediocre life of apprenticeship to Jesus. And what you and I do when we take that stance with God is number one, we have a distorted view of God. Because we've separated his grace, his love, his provision from what we're not seeing happen in our lives. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He's a theologian and author. He says, within this matrix, legalism at root is the manifestation of a restricted heart disposition toward God. Viewing him through the lenses of a negative law that obscures the broader context of the Father's character of holy love. In other words, they have a we or the religious leaders of the day have a distorted view of God because they have a distorted view of grace. And Jesus confronts our distorted view. And the challenge, the challenge for you and me in the age that we live in is we want to find our way around Jesus confronting our sin and come to God on our own terms. 
right? I don't know how many conversations I've had as of recent of people saying, I don't want God using other people in my life to show me or to reveal to me what is sin in my life. That's my business. So don't come to me with your love for God and what the Bible says. This is my life and I'm going to live the way I want to. And that kind of mindset begins with a distorted view of God's grace. Tim Keller says it this way. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. We cannot come to God on our own terms. And I got to be honest, as I'm thinking through that, I don't think we want to. Amen? I don't think we want to come to God on our own terms. What religion will do, and in our case, what the modern self will do, when we strip Jesus out of the picture, is leave it to you to become the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. It's seeing the tree while missing the forest. And what he's, Jesus is doing in John 5 is he's laying out the Father's plan for redemption. But they're hung up on the fact that he chose to heal a man on the Sabbath day. And what we saw last week, and Jake did so prof- such a profound job of doing, is what we saw last week is Jesus is going to focus on those things, those areas in our lives that are not yet transformed by the power of the gospel. And he's going to confront us with those things, those places in our lives that will be untouched by the power of Jesus. And maybe for you, that is a secret addiction. Maybe that's your wall today. Maybe it's a secret sin that you're brushing under the rug because you have so many different activities going on at church that maybe, maybe, just maybe you're doing okay. Or maybe for you the wall is this idea that I'm never going to be good enough. Or maybe for you you're like me and my wall, if I'm just going to be straight and vulnerable with you guys, it's, this has been a struggle with me for, in my life for, gosh, for, for a long time now. Is my wall is, I get off the stage here and immediately I begin believing I'm a failure at life. Because maybe I didn't say the right thing or do the right thing. Have you guys ever felt like that before? See, when we're confronted by Jesus, we get his divinity, but we also get his humanity. And that's really good news. Here's why. John 5 tells us that Jesus has full authority from heaven to judge the world and its sin. But because Jesus became a man and experienced the same things that you and I experience, and the combination of these qualities in Jesus meet you and meet me with conviction while simultaneously raising us up to new life. The author Paul Miller calls it the J-curve. It's this idea that when you and I come to the end of ourselves and we realize that we have nothing to offer, that we need the grace that God offers 
offers to you and me. God brings us to the end of ourselves, and we die to ourselves, but then Jesus, in a resurrection like his, does a little bit of a J-curve in our life, and he rises us, us, us up. Amen? He rises us up. John Stott says, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. See, the life that God has for you and for me is a life where your love and desires are ordered in the right direction. So he's going to confront. He's going to disrupt your security or your sense of security. He's going to undermine your complacency. And he's going to overthrow those patterns and thoughts or behaviors that are causing you to hit the wall like I was in my early 20s. But the good news of the gospel is that he's going to drive us to a place of going deeper. He's not going to allow us to stay where we are. He's not going to allow you and me to continue hitting the wall. And he says this in, in chapter 5, he says this in verse 37. And the Father, and he's speaking about his divinity here still, right? And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Remember Jesus said it, I am the visible of the invisible Father, right? And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You see, and he's talking to the religious leaders again. He said, you search the scriptures. He knows they know him. Because you think that in them you find eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If, if, if another comes in his own name, you, then you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you and Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, he says, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus confronts us with resurrection life. Jesus is confronting these elites with their view on how to get eternal life. He said, you're motivated by glory rather than God's glory. Today, the aim to live forever, or this idea that we can create a new Eden on earth, this idea that the secular version of what is good has a messianic nature to it. This idea that that can come through for us 
is motivated by self-glory and not God's glory. Read verse 42 again. He says this, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. They're coming to God on his own terms. And then in verse 43, he says, I have come in my Father's name, but you do not receive me. If, any, if another comes in his own name, you then receive him. History tells us that what happened was a lot of fake messiahs rose up. And rather than presenting the kingdom of God that flips the world upside down like Jesus is doing in his ministry, they came with power for Israel, right? Political power, financial status. And, they, and he's saying, you'll believe that guy, the fake Messiah, who brings you financial gain and political power, but I'm coming to you telling you, I'm one with the Father, I'm bringing the kingdom. I just healed a guy for crying out loud. And you don't believe me. Why? Because you're after your own glory and not God's glory. Jesus is confronting their self-glorification, which leads to self-preservation with his resurrection power. The message of Jesus today is he is going to confront the things that have built up this wall that is causing you and me to miss the power and his grace, but is going to tear it down. And yes, that means that he's going to confront the uncomfortable things that you and I have are, and are dealing with in our lives. The tolerated sins, the watered-down convictions. But he works on you, and he's also going to work through you with his resurrection power to give you a new outlook in life, a new perspective, a new desire, and a fresh passion. This is what separates the Christian message from all other messages in the world. That God comes down and enables us to come to him by his provisions of the Son. And the messages and messages without grace turn us from hope in God's provision like we talked about earlier, messages without grace. I'm, I'm a loser, right? I'm a failure. I'm never going to be good enough. I, I, maybe this is just my lot in life. This is just my luck. I, I, I'm, I'm never going to get to where I think and know that God and his word says about me is true. But I'm just going to be content with this. When we remove grace and we begin to think those different things. We remove God's provision, his willingness to provide, his willingness to bring life into our situation where it needs to come back to life again. We remove his wisdom and his grace and we turn reliance on whatever human resources we can get our hands onto. It turns us from eyes wide open to the forest of God's redemptive power and story. To the tree of God's law. It gives us a renewed vision and what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's, he's giving us a new and renewed vision of what is good, right, true, and beautiful. And he's saying, I am the one that defines these things. I love what, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here, and I love what um, Eugene Peterson writes in his message. In John chapter 5, in verses 39 and 40, he says this. That you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees.
These scriptures are all about me. Here I am standing right before you, and you aren't even willing to receive the life you say you want. Jesus is inviting you into the grander story of his redemption plan. But the reality is that the enemy wants to take a tree and distract you from what God did on the third day, rising again, taking. And you'll notice there's a little bit of clearing out of fog going on in these pictures here. And this is on purpose because on the third day, what God did when he conquered sin and set everything straight and gave hope to the cosmos that one day he'll redeem all things to himself, he he pushed away the fog of what God was doing in redemptive history, and he said, I have come. And I have come, and this means that because I have conquered death, I will redeem all things, and so that you don't have to focus on the tree and sizing it up and all those different areas in your life where you don't feel good enough or you don't feel like God's power is in you enough. No, I have come with resurrection power, and then later on in Acts we see, what do we see in Acts, right? This is exciting stuff. I should, you should be clapping right now because I'm getting excited about this. But this is exciting stuff. What do we see in Acts? God pours his spirit out just like he promised on all of creation in the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to bring your flesh to life. And he pours out his spirit upon his church. And his church is set forth and born. And the fog clears up. And now we have a greater picture of what God has been doing all along throughout history. Amen. So let's not get distracted by the trees. And let's remember, church, that God is working. And I know that times in our culture it can feel like, man, is God still working? Let's just be honest. But the third day, his resurrection means he is. Amen? A couple next steps for us. First of all, if you're going to come to God on your own terms... You're not going to understand the scriptures. You won't know God's love, at least fully. You won't desire God or experience his life-giving presence. And you will have a distorted view of God. That's just the reality. But what Jesus wants to do in your life is he wants to flip the script. And so he wants us to come to him on his terms. Because of Jesus, the scriptures will come to life and give you life. Amen? Because of Jesus, you will know his love. And you'll know his love fully. Because of Jesus, we can experience the life of Jesus as we adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And because of Jesus, he restores your view of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is good, true, right, and is the authority for our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would flip the script in our life today. That we would leave behind our own terms, our own agendas, and embrace yours. Because the reality is, that's what we really desire. Remind us of that today, Lord. Help us not to get weighed down by the tree of the law. But the law is just meant to point us to the forest. To the God-man who set the record straight. 
and conquer death so that we might have life and life to the fullest. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.